Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class from HowStuffWorks.com. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Sarah Dowdy. And I'm Holly Fry. And it is Black History Month. So always important to mark and take a look at the very rich history available in that arena. It does. And, um, you know, people will write in sometimes with topic suggestions and say, I know I miss Black History Month. Don't ever feel like you have to write that because we <laughs> cover African-American, yeah, Caribbean, It doesn't African. always have to be during Black History yes, Month. Yes, any time of year. But I do always like to mark the month in part because um, for a lot of people, I know, especially if they're in school, this is the time when they're going to uh, study people of color in mm-hmm. their curriculum. And I feel like, you know, why it's important not to contribute, provide some new yeah. topics on that. Um, today's subject, though, is just so cool for um, a lot of reasons. Yes. <laughs> He's a really fabulous entertainer, essentially, yeah. a notable horseman, a very prominent black Victorian um, and Britain's first circus owner of color. Uh, which is that's like a full package like it, of it stuff. <laughs> I mean, just from a historical standpoint, that is such a, a rich like assortment of things to look at. Yeah, and to have it all in one person is really fabulous. One guy, Pablo Funk. So I came across him. I had never heard about him, uh, or at least the name didn't immediately ring a bell. Yeah, for me either. Uh, I came across him in a Smithsonian article by one of my favorite historians, Mike Dash, who writes frequently about these sort of little-known historical figures. Mm. But the name might sound familiar to a few of you out there for one particular reason. We're going to stop for a minute and play a little clip. Benefit of Mr. Kite, there will be a show tonight on trampoline. The Hendersons will all be there, later Pablo Frank is there, what a scene. So the Beatles fans in the crowd probably recognize that clip. You know what we're talking about. Yeah. Being for the benefit of Mr. Kite uh, off of the Beatles' Sgt. Pepper album. Yeah. And um, a lot of the figures in the song are real Victorian circus stars. I know probably most people just assume John Lennon made them up. There's a lot of things going on during Sgt. <laughs> <Yeah>. Pepper. <laughs> make up some circus stars, make up the acts that they do. But a lot of those figures are real people. Yeah. And the way John Lennon... Uh, he really stumbled across he, these he names. Did. This is like the most awesome songwriting story. He was outside of Kent in January 1967 um, filming a video. And he wandered into this antique shop. Like you do. Like you do when you're just on break (laughs) and you're John Lennon. And he spotted a playbill that was advertising a circus. It was a February 1853 show, and it was being for the benefit of Mr. Kite. And you can look up this playbill online. It has, I mean, if we wanted to read it, that could be probably a 30-minute podcast on its own. (laughs) Busy. It's got a lot of text, a lot of names, a lot of descriptions about what the performers do. But you'll see uh, you'll see the Hendersons. You'll see Pablo there, and uh, Lennon was was struck by this poster. Yeah, it also has some cool illustrations too. It shows Mr. Kite balancing on his head on a pole, playing the trumpet. 
if you can visualize that Sweet. real quick. <laughs> um, but he, he bought the poster, took it home, hung it up in his music room, and started looking at it, started messing around with the song, and came up with being for the benefit of Mr. Kite shortly after. Um, but who is Pablo Funk? Because he kind of has a bit part in the song. <laughs> but he was running the show. He was running the show, literally. Uh, but he didn't start out as Pablo Funk. No, he didn't. He was actually born William Darby in 1796 in Norwich to a black father and a white mother. Uh, and there's a great deal of variant information about where his father came from and what he did and when he died. Uh, but the general opinion is that Darby was orphaned fairly young. And somehow or another, he found his way into the circus um, as, Again, a, like as a child, <laughs> like you do. Um, he he ended up working with William Batty, who was a successful circus owner. Uh, he trained him in acrobatics and tightrope walking. And he originally had the stage name Young Darby, eventually took the stage name Pablo Funk, and ultimately became known, even though he was good at acrobatics and tightrope, all that sort of stuff. He became known for his equestrian tricks. And it's likely that he learned uh, the tricks of that trade with a, during a stint with Andrew Duckrow. And this sent me off on a really interesting research tangent of circus history because, I mean, he's establishing himself. I know it just sounds like, okay, he, he hooked up with another uh, talented equestrian performing in Great Britain at the time. But by connecting to... Andrew Duckrow, he really set himself in a direct line from the owner of the first British circus, who was Philip Astley. So he's almost like circus royalty. He is. He's like the, the grandson <laughs> of, of the king of circuses, essentially. Um, according to the Victorian Albert, Astley didn't coin the name circus, but he did establish the first show that we would recognize as a modern circus. And it all came about because he was an ex-cavalry man, opened up a riding school, and would do lessons in the morning and performances in the afternoon. With tricks and music. Yeah, so that kind of... Don't you wonder where he first got that idea of, like, you know what these horses need is a good tune. (laughs) (laughs) Then we're really going to have something. Well, I'm imagining the first show, too, you know, maybe a couple couple students who are sticking around after their lessons, and they're like, that was really cool. (laughs) (laughs) I'm sure it went down exactly like that. We've practically done a a factual reenactment here. Um, over time, though, he he did develop these performances. He started to include his wife, um, her signature act, just because I could not go without mentioning this, was riding on a horse in the ring covered in bees. Which then makes me think of Eddie Izzard. But. <laughs> and um, by 1780, Philip Astley had a, a real circus, a real arena with a roof, diverse circus acts, no mm. longer just equestrian tricks. Um, so so he was the guy who started this all, and his troupe was ultimately taken over by Andrew Duckrow in 1824 and expanded to include not just horse tricks, not just running around in the ring, but things like equestrian dramas. So I love this idea I don't so know, much. Horseback, I'm obsessed with the idea of news performed on horseback. I am too. I think we should bring it back, frankly. Yeah, <laughs> the, the Napoleonic Wars 
reenacted on on horseback. I mean, this was before YouTube, before yeah. Before, that um, was probably a pretty spectacular way to learn what was going on in the world. <laughs> yeah. You know, I'm sure there'd be a pretty good time delay, but it would be really amazing. That <laughs> By just, the time they had to stage it, teach the horses the tricks. <laughs> reading accounts of some of Make it, the though, little Napoleon costume for a horse. <laughs> there's injuries and, and stuff yeah. um, from from staging these, these mock battles, but uh, kind of a... <laughs> it's kind of a fun little sidetrack there, and and really does I think establish though that um, Darby Pablo he was training with the best of the best. Yeah, uh, but he didn't stick around with him. That was like a brief stint in his career. He did return to Batty in 1834, and he had at that point developed really a fine reputation as a horseman on his own. Uh, but his signature act according to your favorite historian. Uh, <laughs> well, well, one of them. <laughs> <laughs> was leaping on horseback over a coach, hitched to a pair of horses, and through a military drum. And this is one where I need a visualization. I want someone to build me a working model of mm-hmm. how this whole thing worked out. Because... Where the drum is involved, particularly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that... Uh... And the pair of horses, like, there, I did he land... With a foot on each one? Like, how did this work? I mean, I'm, well, he was jumping over the pair of horses. He was on his horse, jumping over oh. a coach, hitched to a pair. I see, I see. Um, I see, my visualization was totally <laughs> off. I'm like, so did he land on the horse? I'm just kind of imagining the monster trucks jumping over a I, line yeah. of 20 cars or something. Um, except still, like, I can't figure out where that drum comes in. <laughs> the drum is tricky. The, the point is, though, he was an amazingly talented equestrian performer. And a showman. Mm-hmm. I mean, you don't come up with that kind of, like, multi-level trick unless you really just want to wow a crowd. Yeah. Uh, it was not terribly unique, though, that he was a black circus performer in this time, though, because uh, that was that was not an uncommon sight, at least according to Deirdre Osborne in Studies in Theater and Performance. But the next move that Pablo made was a shockingly unique one for the time. That was deciding to go out on his own and start his own circus. That's a pretty big step to go from performer to entrepreneur. It is. It's a huge step for, for anybody, uh, but especially in the age he was living in, yeah. uh, a black man owning his own business, managing all of the people he ended up managing. Uh, but in 1841, he, he did go for it, struck out on his own, uh, located in the north of England, and didn't have much, too. You know, I mean, he had been a circus performer for uh, quite some time by this point, but he was only able to leave with two horses, and his acts were were very limited. He had the Hemmings family, uh, a family that performed diverse circus acts, tightrope walking. There was apparently a clown who did tricks with a dog. And then sort of his star performer, aside from his own equestrian work, I guess, was his good friend W.F. Wallet, who was also a clown. They were a a team together. So uh, a premier clown, a family of diverse act, and two horses. horses. And that's all you got to start your business with. Yeah. it's um, That's not very much for a circus. No, it it doesn't sound like it's going to be... Uh, promising. <laughs> but fortunately, things worked out for Pablo, um, in part because he had such a good reputation as a boss. Yeah. It attracted performers. 
well, and his crew was very talented. So word of their, you know, impressive skills spread very quickly. And as you said, because he was, he had this great reputation, it, good things attract more good things. That reminded me, I know, I think maybe the last episode, um, our taxidermist friend, I was saying, reminded me a little bit of uh, Barnum, P.T. Barnum. Mm-hmm. Uh, but this clearly does, too, in in this point in particular, that he was a good boss. That was something I remember reading of Barnum, that his performers felt uh, he treated them fairly. Mm-hmm. Um, but eventually... Pablo had 30 horses. So the 15-fold increase. <laughs> grew significantly. You can start doing tricks where you jump over carriages at that point. <laughs> uh, supposedly one was from Queen Victoria's stables, too, so he was not buying so any old So those were good horses. Mm-hmm. Fine pedigrees. He had a band. And this sounds very random, but it kind of makes sense once it's explained. He had a personal architect. Yeah, which most people don't have. I would, yeah. We would maybe <laughs> call this architect. person an engineer today, I think. Yeah, I think you're right. Um, but somebody who would supervise the construction of the little pop-up amphitheaters. Yeah. So for thinking of traveling circuses. Um, I guarantee you Cirque du Soleil has someone that fills this role, yeah, for oh, example. my goodness. I mean, any, anybody that does a traveling show, theatrical performances that tour, like Broadway shows that tour, have someone that does this, but they, I don't, they're just not called architects anymore. Make sure that everything is safe, right. and um, we'll get into that a little more later. Though. Yeah, that, that, those words play a, a part in the story. This so. is the 19th century. He also has a ringmaster, too, which I'd say that's a mark of a real circus at yeah. that point. <laughs> Um, most important, though, he had a really talented advance man. And this plays in a lot to the uh, John Lennon story mm-hmm. and the song composition story. If you think of a, um, this playbill catching Lennon's attention. Yeah. Uh, Pablo's advance man for a time, Edward Sheldon, was a really talented designer of these of these posters and also just knew what he was about, but you'd send your advance man into the next town on your, on your mm. roster. He'd publicize it, get everybody worked up. He's your marketing division. Yeah. Your one man <laughs> marketing group, essentially. And, uh, Sheldon went on to start his own ad agency around 1900. He was very young at this time. Which makes perfect sense. It does. It was, he was ready to adapt for the new. <laughs> new era. Um, but Pablo was really good at, at PR himself. I mean, he knew how to promote his own tricks, usually by showing them to the public. Right. So he would whip through a town. Twelve in hand. Can you describe what that is? Yeah. I mean, if you've ever been to... I went to Cavalia last year, which is the horse-focused circus, and uh-huh. they have lots of things along these lines. But if you just think of a classic circus... Uh, Rider with multiple horses, uh-huh. no carriage or something. A rider with multiple horses holding them all. Uh-huh. And where is the rider place? <laughs> I'm trying to. I'm I know missing I'm that point. Very probing questions. <laughs> I'm missing here. that point in my visualization. But like I've seen riders stand on one horse while they have several others in hand. Yeah. But with twelve, with I just 12, don't know where all the horses go. <laughs> it's another one where you could maybe use an illustration for it. Where do the extra horses go? Because that's a lot of animals to have close together under the command of one human. Riding down a small English street. Yeah, those are not really known for their... Um, <laughs> Wide open spaces. Their, yeah. Forgiving um, 
breath in case. But I bet if you saw <laughs> that happen, you would really want to see the rest of the show. You would probably want to go to the show. Um, and so, yeah, things were things were going well for for Pablo for his show. And six years after starting his own show, he debuted in London, which was very successful. Uh, yeah. And we'll get into that a little later, how tough the London critics could be. According to John Turner, who's a circus historian, Pablo performed on his famous horse, Beta, who is a black mare. And uh, the London Illustrated News was particularly struck by uh, Pablo and his horse and just how impressive they both were and wrote, Mr. Pablo Funk is an artist of color, or rather an artiste of color. That's how they put it. In his steed, we have not only never seen surpassed, but never equaled. Mr. Pablo Funk was the hit of the evening. That's high praise. It is. It is. That's, um, you know, when you consider that this is a circus performer and they're being held in regard as an artist, Mm -hmm. that's really, really indicative of the level of his abilities and his his horsemanship, but also his showmanship, and uh, and as a black man in Victorian England, yeah, too. and we will be discussing that again more later as well. But um, unfortunately, unfo- yeah, things don't always stay sweet. No, they don't. Um, and you know, in the 1840s, you could be a circus success, but that didn't always mean that your fame You'd was assured on. or that you would, you know, stay on top. I mean. As any celebrity knows, sometimes it's fleeting. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and it's a difficult business. With There's so much risk in it. There's so much competition. Uh, and then there was tragedy. Yes. The worst uh, story, the worst thing that happened to Pablo is when his wife, Susanna, was killed. The amphitheater floor collapsed. Um, they had just moved into it. Another circus had vacated it. And the floorboards struck her as she was working in the box office below. Mm-hmm. It's so sad. It is sad. So and it's time to think about that architect again. The architect clearly... he dropped the ball. He did drop the ball. He failed to notice that the structure had been partially taken down before they moved into it. Mm-hmm. Um, nobody was ever held accountable for it. But uh, the really tragic thing here, too, is that she was killed in the box office. Someone stole the ticket box near her body. Um, Ooh, uh, from, so, it's like sad and troubling and it just is. disturbing all at the same time. It is. And I mean, you have to imagine there would be many, many accidents in a in a circus, a touring provincial circus, but um, Probably this would not, not be what so you'd expect. Probably not so many where the theater caves in. Exactly. Yeah. Um, sometimes, though, his troubles were business-based. Um, he had to downsize the show at times. He sued a former employee at one point because the fellow had uh, not paid back some debts and had borrowed some horses. And then probably the lowest blow on the business side was when a creditor sold his debts to William Batty, his old boss. So his boss... It's like embarrassment now on top of the stress of what he was dealing with. Yeah. Uh, but he kept performing, and he had children at this point. Um, he had actually had two marriages, uh, his first marriage and then his second marriage to Elizabeth Corker. Uh, and he had a son, Ted Pablo, who went on to be a star in his own right and actually performed before Queen Victoria. Yeah. So Pablo Sr. <laughs> died in 1871, and he was poor at that point. I think he was living in a rented room. But it's not 
the horribly tragic down and out ending that you might be expecting. <laughs> it's, it's, these shows normally um, head in, in this direction. He was celebrated with an elaborate funeral procession. He was still so he was, immensely popular. He was not wealthy, but he was loved he for was sure loved. as a performer. Uh, it was led by a band playing the Dead March, followed by coaches. His favorite horse was there, packed crowds. So, you know, one one last big show for, for this lifelong a, performer. A fitting send-off. So, that brings us to sort of the side of the story a lot of you have been wondering about, considering our subject, considering his race, considering the time. Yeah. He's obviously a talented performer, somebody who was well-liked. He was a successful businessman when the circus was an incredibly competitive business to be in. For sure. And it's easy to look at his story just as um, as not a racial story at all. Exactly. I mean, it is sort of your classic, like, rise to fame, and then it kind of peters out after a while. Yeah, an entertainer strikes out on his own. I mean, the... It, from the way we've, we've just told it, clearly the greatest hardships in his life are ones that could befall anyone. Exactly. Uh, business troubles, a freak accident. Yeah, um, those have nothing to do with his race. Yeah. They're just the the dangers that befall anybody going out in the world and doing the things he did. Yeah. And and that is actually the opinion of Turner, who we mentioned earlier, um, Funk, Funk's uh, most thorough researcher, the mm-hmm. guy who's, who studied him most thoroughly. Um, he wrote of his subject, quote, it was possible for a black man to be born and live his entire life in Victorian England without apparently encountering the sort of racism modern readers expect. Um that expectation, I guess, is is that he never would have been able to do what he did without tremendous, um, without having to overcome a lot of like discriminatory a issues. Lot of prejudices. And, yeah, mm-hmm. but it just was not the same. For example, as what was going on in the United States at the time. No, well, and, a, and even and many other countries. Well, well and even uh, his own country, as as we're going to see with other performers of uh, different genres, but he occupied this unique, <laughs> completely unique, I think. I mean, it yeah. seems like the only guy um, who managed to operate in this space to um, fulfill all his potential. Yeah. Well, he struck out in an area where there weren't really rules about who could and couldn't do that. Mm-hmm. So it wasn't like he was breaking any societal laws. There was nothing taboo to him stepping into that role. It had just never been done before. And, and we have a quote that speaks to that, too, which is so surprising for the time it was spoken. Um, it was from the chaplain of the Showman's Guild. And uh, after Pablo's death, this man noted, quote, in the great brotherhood of the equestrian world, there is no color line. For although Pablo was of African extraction, he speedily made his way to the top of his profession. The camaraderie of the ring has but one test, ability. So this is from the 1870s. Yeah. It's um, pretty cool. It's very cool uh, that there could be this little sub world where uh where ability was the... Where that trumped all other considerations when Mm -hmm. you were dealing with a person. We can't really assume, though, that this man experienced no That he just sailed through without ever being... 
uh, you know, having to deal with the fact that he was different from the majority. The um, clearest account we can get of that, though, is from his friend Wallet, the clown, who wrote about a visit they took to Oxford where a student blackened his face imitating Pablo. Um, but it doesn't seem, I'm sure there were many incidents like that and probably things even nastier than that that he experienced. But it didn't seem to define his career and it didn't, most importantly, it didn't seem to stop him it from really impact what he was his behavior. Mm-hmm. So that's pretty surprising when you just take a quick look at the state of most black Britons in the Victorian era. And um, I've read Lots of accounts of, of African Americans in this time. Mm-hmm. And there's so much, um, there's so many cultural items produced from that time too. <laughs> Art and books and, and that African Americans were producing themselves philosophical works, novels, plays, poetry. Yeah. Um, that when you take a look at Great Britain at the same period, you might expect it would be, uh, even greater than that, since there's not slavery to contend with. There's more um, opportunities (laughs) for a lot of people. But according to Osborne's article, even though Great Britain's black population really boomed in the 18th century, uh, by the Victorian era, they were pretty much invisible in cultural life. Which is so bizarre to try to piece that together in your head. Yeah. How it, you think of the abolitionist movement. It's like they just kind of vanish from the page for a little while. It is so bizarre, but when you start thinking about your own impressions of the Victorian era, you realize, oh, yes. <laughs> I, you know, nobody comes to mind. Yeah. Um, and that hadn't always been the case, too. I think that's an important thing to note, too. It's not just like this was the tradition uh-huh. of, of how black people in Britain were presented in cultural life. Henry VII and Henry VIII had employed a black trumpeter in their courts. Elizabeth I had an African page, an entertainer in her court. Um, So fairly high profile positions for a person, any person at the time. And then um, black characters were frequently represented on stage, although (laughs) as a side note here, they were not played by Black people. Right. Um, and they were usually presented in a villainous, black moor sort of way. Um, one that Shakespeare set on its head with, with Othello, I yeah. suppose. Um, by the 19th century, there were a few high-profile black figures in entertainment, though. Um, but not very many, which is why Pablo stands out so much. Yeah. He's, he's one of a very small crowd. And I think, too, because his... His skill set was so unique. Yeah. And he was so respected. It really just, he's kind of the shining star of that era when you look at the black community of artists in and, Britain. And he's really the, the shining British star because probably the only, the only figures that were equal to him in fame were actually Americans who had moved to England, um, to escape, well, for the earlier ones, um, a country where slavery was still in place. Yeah. Um, but just have more opportunities too. Ira Aldrich, who is a figure I'd like to learn more about. He moved to Great Britain in 1824 and he was a really successful theater actor mm-hmm. and started off with parts that, um, 
might potentially be played by... So he replaced the white actors that were appearing in blackface. Yeah, so yeah. He, he played Othello, yeah. for instance. He played Ornoco. He uh, performed in plays that featured a black character, like The Revenge, The Slave, The Padlock, plays that we don't see anymore. Yeah, just um, no, those conjure no... Uh, <laughs> recognition. In, instant uh, thoughts on oh, my part. The Revenge. Oh, yeah. <laughs> um, the but, Castle Spectre, that one. <laughs> the Castle Spectre... <laughs> Yeah, I, I'm curious about that one. Uh, he ran out of parts, though, pretty soon. And, oh, yeah. And ultimately became the first black man to play white roles in Shakespeare. He played Macbeth and Hamlet and King Lear. Just pretty impressive. Very impressive. And, and he was... For any actor. Yeah, for, <laughs> for any actor, certainly. Um, and, you know, I, I noted earlier how remarkable it was that Pablo was well-received in London because Aldrich, even though he ultimately became internationally famous as a Shakespearean actor, still couldn't get a good review in London uh, because of his race. Um, he was followed by a few other, ironically again, American actors, American Shakespearean black actors, Samuel Morgan Smith, um, Paul Molyneux Hewlett, uh, Hewlett was incidentally the last black man to play the part of Othello on a West End stage until 1930. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. <laughs> That's a cool little bit of trivia. So I think it was um, right around the turn of the century. And then there's a 30-year Gap. stretch where they go back to white guys playing Othello. Oh. Um, so One step forward, two steps back. Yeah. <laughs> Just, to, I mean, learning a little bit more about the state of black entertainment in um, Victorian England was really... (laughs) Even that phrase, I mean, I think a lot of people haven't put those words together very often. (laughs) It's not something that comes up in history books. It's certainly not even something that comes up in historical film Mm -hmm. that I can think of. Uh, It's a a unique sphere of culture to study. I think it's good to know it's there. Um, and, And to know that there was more than minstrel shows, more than um, white actors performing in blackface. Yeah. Um, that there were these few, at least, high-profile black stars of the day. Yeah. Um, and just on the creation side, too, I mean, we're talking about performers. Um, according to Osborne, there is no evidence of any drama being penned or devised by black people in Britain until the 20th century. Which, again, going back to what I was saying about all of the um, 19th century American works. I mean, yeah. it's such a huge <laughs> movement in literature. Yeah. it's That is very strange it's, to think about. It's shocking. So hopefully all I of I mean, the, it's almost suspicious. It, it is. It is. I mean. Like, I, really nothing was going on? Are you sure? But where, where the historians was, have not been able to dig anything up. Where was everyone? How could a race of people be... So invisible, um, yeah, for so long. But I guess it does further emphasize <laughs> the impressiveness of Pablo's fame and uh, acceptance during this. Yeah, he really seemed time. to transcend any such issues, and um, unlike the odd mystery of not a lot of creative things happening in the black community, in surely Britain at they the were time, happening. Surely, yeah, he managed to rise through all of that and really be a public figure, mm-hmm. which is pretty cool. It is. 
So he was fun to learn about. I'm glad I stumbled upon him. Well, and there are so many, like, connections to his story that are also potential rich avenues of exploration. Oh, my gosh. So many. Circus history. I know. Wow. <laughs> Circus history. And, again, Aldrich, too. Yeah. He He seems like a really interesting figure. And um, just in general, too, from topics we've covered in the past, uh African-American subjects who have moved during the 19th century. I think the Crafts, one of my favorite episodes, Ellen and William Craft, they escaped slavery. They ended up in England for a time because they could have a safe life there, um, which they could not as runaways, even in, in the northern states. There was a risk of recapture. It makes me wonder now. I always just sort of assumed that these people went off to England and they're strolling arm in arm with abolitionists at the Great <laughs> Exhibition. What, uh, what was what really life going was like on for, yeah. for black Britons during that time? Yeah. So, something to explore later, I suppose. Oh, Pablo, <laughs> thank you for your awesome story. <laughs> Okay, so we're going to do a little non-traditional listener mail today, but one of my favorite segments. You gotta, We don't do these very often because we kind of have to collect them for a while yeah. if they're really going to be fun. It's our old segment, I Listen Well, and we promised we would be delivering this <laughs> pretty soon. Um, just We hear so many neat things that listeners do while they're also taking in the podcast, yeah. and we thought we would share some of them. So I'm going to kick it off, Holly. Okay. Willie from San Jose listens while building robots. Yeah, that's cool. It's really cool. A lot of these are really cool. Uh, Naya listens while feeding her parents Shetland sheep. Oh, awesome. I love that. <laughs> I love the image of her just strolling through. Listening to history. <laughs> um, Liz listens while driving. So a lot of you do that. But she goes on to, <laughs> to say that at one point she was so engrossed in the Romanovs episode, she didn't realize that a police officer was behind her and she wound up with a speeding ticket. Whoops! Sorry, Liz. (laughs) (laughs) Whoopsie. Uh, Kristen listens while she works as a pastry chef. I love her already. Uh, Rolling out dough, portioning cookies, even making ravioli. She also listened last year while she built her own backyard pizza oven with her own two lady hands. Oh my gosh, we need to be friends with her. I'm I'm for sure on that, because that (laughs) sounds delicious and delightful to me. Um, Listener Jenny and her husband listened while they were honeymooning in Iceland. So congrats, you guys. Uh, Christy from Calgary listens while she pattern makes, cuts, sews, and test samples for Ryoko, her urban bike wear company. Another one after my heart. Yeah. And I love active wear. This one's kind of similar to that, too. Catherine in Phoenix listens while she crochets. And last Christmas, she crocheted 28 scarves for Christmas. That's very cool. Those very are 28 cool. very happy recipients, mm-hmm. I bet. Uh, Brandy Ann listens while she runs so often. She says that whenever I hear your intro music, I now have an uncontrollable Pavlovian desire to run. I think I might I have understand sh- that completely. <laughs> I might have shared that one on, on Facebook at one point because I, I loved it cool. so much. <laughs> um, this is another one. Um, maybe we should make friends. <laughs> Listener Valerie listens uh, in Austin, Texas, where she works at a local bakery. She says she bakes hundreds of breakfast pastries, including croissants, danishes, and cinnamon rolls, along with a bit of bread while she listens. Cinnamon rolls. I had to clean up the drool before I can go <laughs> on. That sounds so good. Glenn is a professional hand quilter and listens while creating tiny stitching over yards of fabric. because He makes sandwich quilts. My hat is off to him. I have done that, and it's 
extremely time consuming and takes a very special person he that sent has us the some patience. of his work too. It's very impressive. Um, this one is is episode specific. She was listening to our blood work interview with Holly Tucker, and uh, this is Kate from Australia. She listened to that episode while she was waiting to give blood. <laughs> I think I would have chickened out if I was listening to that episode. I mean, to fill you in, Holly, it's about uh, lamb's blood being transfused to a boy, things like that. You know, just stuff. (laughs) Gets you in the mood for blood donation. Oh, my goodness. Uh, Joe in Philadelphia listens while volunteering at the local animal care and control shelter, another person after my heart. He transports animals to safe rescues throughout the region and listens to podcasts while he's driving cats, dogs, or even birds, turtles, hamsters, and squirrels to new facilities and homes. I love that so much. That one is so sweet. I love it. That's great to... I'm a crazy animal lady, so I love it. Great here we have a transport group fan and we also have a listener paul who listens while training bumblebees to forage on artificial flowers in the lab he says i shall look forward to more installments as will my queen and her workers (laughs) i love it hopefully we'll keep the queen happy and they will be uh, very productive little busy bees well they would have loved this episode because um of Philip Astley's wife riding oh, with yeah. a swarm of bees. Exactly. So this, now they have circus aspirations. <laughs> this one's for you, Mrs. Queen Bee. So, so, Paul, get ready for your queen to come to you with a request <laughs> that she would like to get into show business a little she bit. She needs an equestrian companion. <laughs> So thank you, um, and thanks to folks, too, who listen while you're entering work into an Excel document and driving. We appreciate you, too, but it's always fun to to hear from some of the folks doing surprising Unique activities Mm -hmm. and that have unique jobs. Yeah, so if you want to pass on any of those to us, also suggestions for other topics, all sorts of things. We are at History Podcast at Discovery.com. We're also on Twitter at Missed in History, and we are on Facebook. We have some circus content, too, don't we? We have a bunch. If you go to our website and type in the word circus in the search bar, we have a whole section on circus arts, including how a human cannonball works. We have quizzes about circus behaviors. Sword swallowing. <laughs> yeah, we have fireballs. We have a lot of cool stuff. Yeah. Uh, if you like circuses, you'll be busy for a while. Uh, and if you want to research anything else your mind can conjure, you can also do that at our website. And that website is HowStuffWorks.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com.